0: Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated remembers the 2001 season as being the first time that clean players were coming up to him and complaining about the rampant steroid use in baseball. They felt if they were playing the game clean that they were at a disadvantage, he remembers. The 2001 season is known as the height of the steroid era. Barry Bonds of the San Francisco Giants hit 73 home runs that year, surpassing Mark McGuire's record of 70 set in 1998. Sammy Sosa hit 64 home runs for the Chicago Cubs, the third time since 1998 that he had hit 60 or more, and Luis Gonzalez of the Arizona Diamondbacks hit 57, 26 more than he hit in any other year of his career. As Sports Illustrated baseball writers and editors met during spring training in 2002, Verducci told the group, The story of the season will be how much steroid use is going on in baseball and we better be the ones to write the story. His editors greenlit the piece and told him to get to work on it. Verducci didn't have a problem getting people to talk about their own steroid use off the record, but the biggest trick was going to be to get someone to go on the record. I couldn't write a story full of anonymous quotes and speculation. That had been done before, said Verducci. The big break, obviously, was getting Ken Caminiti. This is Secondary League, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti, a 10-part series on the life and career of one of the most important baseball players of the 80s and 90s. If you like this show, please click subscribe and leave a rating or review. And now, Chapter 9, Totally Juiced. News of Ken Caminiti's arrest in November 2001 shocked many within the baseball community, including his agent Rick Licht, who publicly expressed that he believed Caminiti had been sober for 13 months before his arrest. Merv Retmond the hitting coach for the Padres and Braves during Caminiti's tenure, begs to differ.
1: We had a mutual friend that assured
2: me that he was clean, and I really, 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 really doubt that. He just, he didn't even resemble the same player and and our person.
0: LaToya Bowman, 19 at the time, was one of those arrested with Caminiti at the Ramada Limited in Houston. She gave a jailhouse interview in 2001 to the Houston Chronicle. She said she had recently moved to the area from Louisiana and heard Caminiti's name mentioned by those she knew in the Houston drug scene. They had only known each other for a few days at the time of the arrest but Caminiti already felt comfortable to talk to her about some very personal subjects. He was a nice person, but he seemed to have issues at home, Bowman said, saying that he had asked her for advice about dealing with Nancy. On November 13th, Caminiti checked into the Ramada Limited along with two other men. A night security guard at the hotel saw a woman with them, and Bowman said that there was a second woman, a friend who she didn't name, who was there, but left the room before Harris County Sheriff's deputies showed up at 3.30 p.m. on November 14th. Cedric Palmer, the 23-year-old who was also in the room with Caminiti and Bowman, was jailed as well. His bail was set at $15,000, higher than either Caminiti's or Bowman's because of his previous criminal record of being convicted of a state felony for possession of less than one gram of a controlled substance when he was just 18. Lamont Palmer, the man pulled over for driving Caminiti's car, was Cedric's cousin. One of their aunts said that Lamont had known Kamenetti for over a year and that he frequently drove Kamenetti's cars. It is still a mystery as to how Kamenetti, the Palmers, and Bowman all managed to come together. Here's what John Covington says Kamenetti told him about the incident.
1: I was so surprised when I heard about him getting arrested. I'm like, is this the kid I know? I think he just hooked up with the wrong people. What he told me, this guy was a drug dealer and they ran out of drugs and the guy was took his Mercedes to go get some more drugs, got pulled over, and uh, he told the cops Ken was back there at the hotel, and the guy didn't call Ken and tell him that they were coming. So then the cops came in to his hotel room and arrested them all.
0: Secondary lead cannot independently find any evidence that Lamont Palmer was a drug dealer. After the arrest, Ken told a Houston TV station, it's been a mistake that pretty much cost me my marriage. I made a lot of mistakes. These mistakes I'm paying for in a way that I'm learning a lot from. I'm not a bad person. Ken had filed for free agency after the 2001 season with the hopes of catching on with a team. But even before the arrest, he might have been lukewarm on the idea. However, this incident put an end to that possibility. I don't think there's a chance of me playing again, he said. Everything hurts. I relapsed twice after the season was over. I went through the whole season and just was so depressed. My body was aching all the time. Lee Kamenetti wanted to get his son out of the Houston area where he believed there were too many bad influences on him. Ken though, wanted to stay in Houston to be close to his daughters, whom he saw regularly. Shortly after the arrest, Caminiti left the Houston area and checked into rehab. Ken spent time at the Meadows Addiction Treatment Center in Wickenburg, Arizona, and also some time in a facility in New Mexico. In these treatment centers, Ken opened up and made himself vulnerable. A man who spent time with him in rehab said that he felt like he had let his family down and that he was determined to make things work with Nancy. Ken Caminiti had his day in court on March 31, 2002. Texas State District Judge Bill Harmon accepted the 38-year-old's guilty plea and sentenced him to three years of deferred adjudication probation. That meant if Caminiti could follow the community supervision guidelines, Harmon would discharge him and dismiss the case without a conviction. If he failed, Harris County prosecutors could move to adjudicate the case and send him to jail. Harmon also ruled that Ken must receive counseling three days a week, perform community service, continue attending AA meetings, and submit to urine tests every 90 days, as well as pay a $2,000 fine. You've committed your last defense. You've had your last drink. You've had your last controlled substance, Harmon said. The judge told Caminiti that he was getting a break in avoiding prison time. Latoya Bowman also received probation, while Cedric Palmer got eight months in jail because of his prior felony. After the sentence was handed down, Caminiti said, This is the largest mistake I've made in my life. I had a real good thing going for me and I got sidetracked. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be drugs. It doesn't have to be alcohol. That part of my life is over. In April, Ken received permission from his probation officer to leave Harris County and travel to Laughlin, Nevada for the 20th Annual Laughlin River Run, a major biker event. The orange bike that John Covington had begun building for him in 2001 was finished, and Ken was going to pick it up. The plan was for Caminiti and a friend to head to Phoenix and rendezvous with Covington and two of John's other clients. The party of five took the 227-mile drive to the extreme southern tip of Nevada, and checked into their rooms at the Harris Laughlin Casino.
1: He was super excited, more talkative than I ever heard him. And he was, you know, talking about his feelings, how he felt about this, how he felt about that, how, how, you know, he, he's happy that he had this baseball career that did so well, but now he's ready to do something new. You know, he, he really loves the cars and all the hell and the parts and and all that kind of stuff. And I, he was talking about building his new garage at home. He had some giant metal building they were building for him. So he was all excited about doing that stuff. And, uh, you know, just kind of starting over, new life, new chapter. And he he seemed positive and happy.
0: That attitude changed quickly on the afternoon of April 26th, 2002. It had been arranged for Ken to appear on a television interview, and it was being taped that afternoon in a room at the Harris Hotel.
1: We were all um, hanging out in the parking lot, uh, you know, with the bike set up and all that. And Ken said, I'll be back in about an hour. So he, he went, when he came back, it was the most shocking thing because I'd never seen him cry and he was crying. He says, oh man, I don't know what just happened, but it was bad.
0: After some time, the interview turned when the CNN producer asked Ken if he had ever cheated on Nancy. He was caught off guard by the sudden change in the line of questioning, which turned to steroids in baseball. That afternoon, for the first time, Ken Kamenity publicly admitted to using steroids. It was a watershed moment in the course of baseball history and in the life of Ken Caminiti. The cat was now forever out of the bag.
1: He felt like he got tricked into saying that and then it was like he was almost getting set up for that because they were asking all these other questions that he got put off guard by the lady asking him if he ever cheated on his wife and that's and he says well what do you say you can't you know I'm not gonna lie yeah you already know that why are you asking me that and then it went into this baseball thing so yeah, the steroids deal and i think that he was just he wanted to talk about his new life and starting over and you know make amends for you know people that he had wronged and he wanted to just you know move on and, and start a new life he was, he was in a real positive space but i think that that interview you know i think that that just you know threw him under the bus because he was so raw right there he was you know, he'd been through all this therapy, and he was, you know, he was actually talkative. You know, he was, he was letting you know how he really felt, because he's usually quiet. But uh, I think that that was, that was a pretty traumatic thing for him. I think that they, you know, tricked him, and he was hoping for something else. I remember uh, a year before when people were taking pictures of him and, and all this other stuff. He, says, it does, it, he told me, it doesn't matter what I do, they're going to make you look good. And this time, they made him look bad.
0: Things only got worse that day. The group ate dinner and went gambling around town. At around 10pm, the group broke apart and John says he didn't see Ken again until the next morning. By that point, Harris was on total lockdown. Tensions had been simmering between the Hells Angels and Mongols outlaw biker groups for months. Early in the morning of April 27th, Covington was playing blackjack at Harris when he noticed a few Hells Angels members hanging out at the bar. This was unusual, as Hells Angels didn't usually come to Harris. Quickly, they were surrounded by a group of Mongols. Things were tense, and John decided to go up to his room and call it a night. As he walked through the lobby, John saw a group of 30 to 40 Hells Angels burst through the front door of the casino. After a short time, an all-out melee began on the casino floor and was captured on Harris' security cameras. A shootout ensued. In the end, three were dead, Many more were injured, and dozens were arrested.
1: Alarms were going off. We were in lockdown. You can't leave. So we're turning on the TV and we're watching cable TV. And all the news is the helicopters flying around our casino. He was like, "Turn this thing off." We were stuck in the hotel room. you couldn't get out. So, you know, because we were in lockdown. And the, the TV was starting to piss him off, and it's getting real antsy. And then uh, uh, when we finally were able to get out of the room, which was about two or three in the afternoon. He says, I'm, I'm getting a taxi cab and they're going to drive me to Vegas and I'm flying home. He said, all right, I'll take care of all your stuff. So that was the last time I saw him.
0: Soon after he returned home from Laughlin, Ken received a phone call from Sports Illustrated's Tom Verducci. The writer had profiled Caminiti during his 1996 MVP season and pitched him the story on steroids that he had been working on for several weeks at that point. This was in the days when CNN and Sports Illustrated had an operating partnership, and the producer who had spoken with Ken and Laughlin tipped off Verducci that he needed to talk to Cammie. Evidently calmed down and willing to speak once again, Ken agreed to the interview, and Verducci flew to Houston for the biggest interview of his life. In addition to motorcycles, Ken dedicated a lot of his free time to working on cars and hot rods. For a while, and Eddie owned a business along with Houston real estate developer Dan Bennick called Southern Rod and Custom. Ken was a big Chevy guy. He had a black and white 1957 Chevrolet 210 sedan, which he had spent over $225,000 to fix up and had running at over 1,000 horsepower. The car sold at a Barrett-Jackson auction in 2007 for $176,000. He also owned a 1963 two-door Impala SS, a 1973 Camaro which was rebuilt for drag racing, and several Chevy S10 trucks for drag racing. There was even a deal in place at one point for Caminiti to drive a Chevrolet S10 truck on the NHRA drag racing circuit, a car that he co-owned with friend and drag racer Ron Caps. Ken still had the 1973 Chevrolet pickup truck that was his first car and his prized possession. The most famous car, though, in Cammie's garage was a 1955 Chevrolet Bel Air, which was nicknamed The Gun. In 1989, Ken bought the car from a woman in Oklahoma for $3,900. By the time the car graced the cover of Hot Rod magazine in March 1997, he estimated that he had spent over $175,000 on the car including $11,000 alone on the exhaust system. He rebuilt the front bumper in eight sections, and the black and pink two-tone sedan was once rated as the number two show car in America in its category. In 2004, he was converting the 996 horsepower car into a tamed down version for street driving. He gave the car a new orange and cream paint job to match his motorcycle and replaced the entire front end. Today, the gun is owned by Jack Rankin, Rankin found the car at a fabricator shop in Houston, hiding underneath a tarp in the corner. He asked the man about it and discovered that it was Kamenetti's 1955 Chevy Bel Air. Working through a middleman, he purchased the car from the Kamenetti estate in 2010. The car was intermittently worked on while it sat in that fabricator's shop until late 2019. When Rankin had the car moved to his Dallas-Fort Worth auto shop, Rankin has continued the work that Ken was doing to the vehicle to make it suitable for street driving and is preparing to put the car up for sale in 2021. Caminiti had a big garage in his house, where he spent hours working on these cars and motorcycles. When Tom Verducci showed up at Caminiti's doorstep in May 2002, Ken grabbed a few lawn chairs, and the pair sat down in the garage. They talked for hours, and then afterwards went to dinner at a diner that Caminiti frequented. He ordered, as usual, a 10 egg white omelet. Verducci remembers their conversation over dinner. Ken asked, this is a pretty big deal, huh? Verducci replied, yes, this is going to be pretty big. Then Caminiti paused for a moment and said, I've got nothing to hide. CNN's Wolf Blitzer had a jam-packed show for Tuesday, May 28, 2002. President George W. Bush had publicly weighed in on the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. After one year, Chandra Levy's death was ruled a homicide, and U.S. intelligence announced they believed that troops had pushed al-Qaeda and Taliban leadership out of Afghanistan and into neighboring Pakistan. But none of those stories led off Blitzer's show. The lead story was Ken Caminiti. With Tom Verducci's explosive Sports Illustrated expose set to hit newsstands the next morning, the writer appeared for a lengthy interview on Wolf Blitzer Reports. The segment also featured excerpts from the interview Ken did in Laughlin. The next day, Sports Illustrated's June 3rd issue hit newsstands. The cover was a solid blue background with no photograph. The headline above a baseball with two crisscross syringes blared in all caps, steroids in baseball. Below the ball was the subhead, confessions of an MVP. In the lower right corner was a pull quote. At first, I felt like a cheater, but I looked around, and everybody was doing it. Ken Caminiti. In the article, Ken became the first prominent player to admit to using steroids. Verducci detailed his shoulder injury early in the 96 season, Caminiti driving down to Tijuana, and how he got more sophisticated in his usage throughout the years. Ken pointed to his injuries from 1997 through 2001 as a result of getting too strong too quick. I pulled a lot of muscles. I broke down a lot. I'm still paying for it. My muscles got too strong for my tendons and ligaments," he said. Media focused a lot on Kamenadi's assertion that around 50% of major leaguers were on steroids, a claim that was backed up by Chad Curtis in the article. Jose Canseco, who was beginning to write his tell-all book, upped the ante and said that 85% of ballplayers were using. Ken quickly walked that comment back, saying that that number was a guess, not a fact. But that didn't stop the press from focusing on the 50% number. After years of denials that steroids were a major problem in baseball, there was no way anyone could deny the problem now. What sticks with Verducci is Caminiti's honesty and his lack of remorse for steroid use. I've made a ton of mistakes, Caminiti said. I don't think using steroids is one of them. It's no secret what's going on in baseball. At least half the guys are using steroids. They talk about it. They joke about it with each other. The guys who want to protect themselves or their image by lying have that right. Me? I'm at the point in my career where I've done just about every bad thing you can do. I try to walk with my head up. I don't have to hold my tongue. I don't want to hurt teammates or friends. But I've got nothing to hide. If a young player were to ask me what to do, I'm not going to tell him it's bad. Look at all the money in the game. You have a chance to set your family up, to get your daughter into a better school. So I can't say, don't do it. Not when the guy next to you is as big as a house and he's going to take your job and make the money. Sports orthopedist James Andrews speculated that it might take the tragedy of a player dying to wake people up to the steroid problem in baseball. He cited the case of Lyle Alzado, an NFL player who died at age 43 from brain cancer caused by excessive steroid use. Fortunately, it didn't take tragedy to force baseball's hand to act but it did take action from a presidential candidate. In Washington, D.C., Senator John McCain read the article. When he was finished, he picked up the phone and called Senator Byron Dorgan, a Democrat from North Dakota and the chairman of the Senate Subcommittee on Consumer Affairs, Foreign Commerce and Tourism, and asked him to call a meeting. Fifteen days later, MLBPA Executive Director Donald Fear and chief labor negotiator for the owners, Rob Manfred, testified in front of the committee. Fifty days after that, the players' union agreed for the first time ever to submit to random drug testing. The score
2: Sports Radio 670. By the way, Kev, here's Kameniti's comments, which of course can be caught in Sports Illustrated, which should be coming out tomorrow. I've made a ton of mistakes. Said Caminiti, a recovering alcoholic and former drug user, whose 15-year career ended last season. I don't think using steroids is one of them. I mean, what's he trying to accomplish with this article if he's going to say that? Is I he have trying, no idea. Is, at first I thought
1: maybe he was trying to do some good and warn players, and now I've, with that comment? Yeah. What's that going to do? That's going to make, you know, young players who want to be better you maybe
2: use steroids to me steroids is worse than alcohol and the drugs he was using because this will shorten his life is that did they pose why what was his point of coming out no what did he want what did he want to accomplish by coming out i guess the only way we'll find this out is when he does the interviews and he most definitely will sometime down the road he'll be on somebody's cable tv show talking about why he said what he said
0: that clip from a sports talk show in chicago characterizes a lot of the reaction Caminiti got in the next few days. Ken had broken the unspoken agreement that what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. The reaction to Caminiti's steroid admission was mixed, to say the least. Many players cheered the admission, including Lance Berkman, Trevor Hoffman, Mark Grace, and Frank Thomas. Many others, though, lashed out at Caminiti. Mo Vaughn, who was later named a steroid user in the 2007 Mitchell Report, criticized Caminiti for belittling other people's success. San Francisco Giants manager Dusty Baker called Caminiti a snitch, even though he never on or off the record named another player. Even Gene Orza, one of the top brass at the Players Union, chipped in with a bizarre statement that cigarettes are worse than steroids. The MLBPA had been fighting against drug testing since the Pittsburgh drug scandal in the mid-1980s and argued that steroid testing violated players' privacy. Ex-union leader Marvin Miller went to his grave in 2012 believing that agreeing to steroid testing was a mistake. Even Caminetti’s friends were split. While Trevor Hoffman publicly spoke about wanting steroids eradicated from the game, Jeff Bagwell did not offer much public support. He said, The whole thing is a shame. The only thing I'm saying about the whole deal, everyone is a grown man. Everyone makes their own decisions. To come up with numbers, 50%, 85%, unless you're in every single clubhouse, you can't make that assessment. Brad Osmus was still in the midst of his career when the article hit newsstands.
2: I guess I was a little surprised, but I, I think I understood
1: why he did it. Mm-hmm. I think it was more of a healing process for him. Um, so I, just, I certainly didn't have any problem. I was, I was fully supportive of him. It's, it's tough to, when, you know, Camry I mean, is, when you know the person, he's got such a good soul that uh, it's hard not to at least support him and, uh, and him trying to make himself a better person. Which I think that was a big, a part of a bigger picture.
0: The fact of the matter is that once the steroid problem was named and out in the open, there was no hiding from a push for real testing. Mark Creedler wrote for ESPN.com that as a recently retired former MVP, Caminiti coming out and admitting it forced people to pay attention in a way that they wouldn't have to Jose Canseco. Ken had a credibility in making those statements about steroids that Canseco will never have with the public. People laughed at Jose Canseco, and still do. Nobody laughed at Caminiti. No matter what the union wanted to push for, Caminiti's confession called into question the basic integrity of the sports records. And with baseball's reputation still tarnished from the 1994 strike, there was simply no choice but to begin baseball's first steroid testing protocol. Lee Kamenetti said to Bleacher Report in 2014, right after the article, baseball blackballed Kenny. They didn't mention his name. When I look at some of these guys, they weren't half the guy Kenny was. If you've paid attention throughout this story, you've probably noticed a big question mark around Kamenetti's steroid use. Remember that Ken had his first conversations about steroids with Chris Donalds sometime in 1993 or 94, when Donalds referred him to Kirk Radomsky. While there's no evidence that Radomsky ever supplied Kamenity with steroids, Donnells told former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell that sometime after that referral, Kamenity told him he was going to start using steroids. On page 73 of the 409-page Mitchell report, the investigation found, quote, a number of Caminetti's former teammates recounted incidents describing his open use of steroids as early as 1995. Ken visually bulked up some during the 1993 94 offseason. He set numerous offensive career highs in 94 and 95 before his MVP season. For sure, some of that can be attributed to being clean of drugs and taking better care of himself, as well as improved training methods. However, steroids were the driving factor in Ken's overall massive transformation during the 1990s. While it's very likely that Ken was using steroids before 1996, that's still an important inflection point as to when his usage took off. Remember this from John Covington, talking about meeting Caminity in 1996.
1: In that season, I remember asking, because he came in before spring training when we were talking about building his first bike, Rob introduced me, and he wasn't that big. And then he came in a couple months later. He's huge. I go, how did you get that big? And he says, oh, I just work out. You know, so it was obvious to me that he was doing something more than just working out, because in two months you can't turn into the Hulk. But he got big that year.
0: It's likely that the injury in April '96 was an important catalyst in Caminiti's steroid usage. Back then. Many players only use steroids in the offseason or in maintenance doses when working out, and they didn't take them during the season to bulk up. It's possible that the injury forced Caminiti to ramp up his steroid usage to get through the season, and when he pointed to that incident with Verducci, in his mind, that was when he truly became a full-fledged user, as opposed to someone who only dabbled. Or maybe the teammates cited by Mitchell in the report were mistaken about the year, and remembered it as 95 when it was actually 96. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. But there's something about the 1994 season, when Ken turned 31. Before 94, representing his age 24 through age 30 seasons, Caminiti averaged 11 home runs per 162 games played and never hit a home run from both sides of the plate in the same game. From 94 on, representing 31 to 38, he averaged 32 home runs per 162 and switch hit home runs 10 times which was a National League record at the time of his retirement. Until he went into rehab in the 2000 season, the turnaround was attributed to being clean of alcohol. But we know that Ken was drinking again in 1997. It makes sense that being clean would help him be better. However, during the span of 97-01, he kept his home run pace at 30 per 162 games. You would expect that injuries, age, and relapse would be breaking his performance down and that he wouldn't be able to maintain such a high level of play. The question of why Ken would use steroids is both obvious and a mystery. His teammates swear he took them to help in recovery from injuries and not to get big and put up stats. But Ken's true motivations are known to him alone, though he does leave little hints in his words throughout the years. Take this from the Sports Illustrated article. He said, Look at all the money in the game. You have a chance to set your family up to get your daughter in a better school. So I can't say don't do it. Not when the guy next to you is as big as a house and he's going to take your job and make the money. Then remember this from an interview he gave in St. Louis during the 1996 season.
2: Well, I've overcome a lot of a lot of problems this year. I've had some, some ligament problems, lower abdominal problems, shoulder problems. Um, I really didn't think anything. Uh, I, I was so frustrated at one time, I was just saying, you know, I'm just going to get everything fixed. I have to get my shoulder uh, repaired at the end of this year, but I was thinking about going ahead and doing it because I wasn't helping the team. I went through a two for 52 slump and it was miserable. But I started feeling a lot better. I started putting the ball in play. I started not falling off the pitches, but hitting them a little bit better. Um, and all of a sudden my power came and uh, I'm, I'm real excited about what's happened for me this year. I, I just want to show up and play, and at the end of the day, hopefully i help the team.
0: As a glove-first player at an offense-first position, taking steroids may have been the path he saw to securing his place in the game. He was constantly being brought up in trade rumors. The Astros brought in Jeff Bagwell as competition in 1991, and by 92, they drafted his eventual replacement, Phil Nevin. Lingering shoulder issues from his injury in college, Combined with the toll imposed on his body through his reckless playing style made it hard to stay on the field. If he missed time, maybe the next guy up would take his job away. Ken was insecure, self-doubting, and sensitive to all these factors. It doesn't seem like a stretch that these would be the motivating factors that drove him to explore steroid usage in the early 90s. Ken also hints at his mental state when he talks about the physical toll steroids have taken on his body. Caminiti was prescribed synthetic testosterone by his doctor since years of steroid usage had shut down his body's natural production. He said, You know what it's like? You get lethargic. You get depressed. It's terrible.
3: I wish he was treated for what he really needed to be treated for. He really needed to be treated for depression. I think that if maybe he was treated for that, maybe things would have been different. But he was never treated for that.
0: Maria Romero backs up that Ken was depressed for much of the time they were together. The physical side effects of steroids and his drug use, as well as losing his baseball career, his marriage, and many friends, all surely fed this feeling inside him. On July 10th, just over one month after Sports Illustrated hit newsstands, Nancy filed for divorce. It was finalized on December 10th. After dating since they were in 9th grade, Ken and Nancy were done. One of the defining characteristics of addiction is an inability to stop using despite negative consequences in the addict's life. The divorce and the decisions which led to it were certainly negative consequences for Ken, but his personal struggles remained. The divorce came at the end of a long year for Ken, in which he dealt with his life beginning to unravel. Addiction, depression, and guilt, along with trying to redefine a life that had been defined by baseball, made 2002 a turbulent year. Dana Corey was a college teammate and friend of Ken's.
1: Really I think Ken wanted to be liked more than people realized. I think when all this stuff came out in the Sports Illustrated article on the steroid stuff, I think it really it really hurt him. I don't think he fully comprehended what what was going on as far as the impact of him being candid and honest about things. And I think to the extent that hurt people in his family, I think that bothered him a lot.
0: In a way, some of what he was facing is common among former athletes. When their careers end, they feel discarded and abandoned by their sport. And in Kamenetti's case, this feeling was justified by his unceremonious release from the Braves and the reaction to his steroid admission. He was also dealing with demons that many addicts face in trying to get clean. Recovery is not a straight line for everybody. There are periods of sobriety and relapse along the way, and for someone with a strong will like Kamenity, it must have been frustrating to not have the mental strength to beat this disease alone. Not helping things was a motorcycle accident Ken was involved in toward the end of 2002. He was taken to the hospital, and was given when an article called a narcotic pain reliever. That a doctor administered narcotics to someone with Caminiti's history of addiction is stunning, and it predictably set Ken off on a spiral of using again. In this time, he came home to San Jose frequently, and was spotted several times at drug houses by friends. Gus Gerard is a former professional basketball player who became a drug counselor after his career and was Caminiti's counselor at the Next Step for Men Treatment Center in Houston. Gerard told the Houston Chronicle in 2004, He just couldn't let go. He was a very angry person. He had a lot of anger and resentment, and that was eating him up. He had deep-rooted resentment against baseball because of the fact that he had to take a lot of pain-killing shots before games, which really tore his body up. He wouldn't talk about it that much, but you could tell he had a lot of anger over that. And when you have that level of anger, it eats at you. And one of the easiest ways to cope with that is to medicate yourself so you don't feel so crazy in your head. Unfortunately, he chose to do that a lot. Despite the internal turmoil, Kemenetti never stopped trying to help others. Gerard remembers a time where Kemenetti purchased the center a 15-passenger van to transport outpatients to their daily sobriety meetings. He wanted to save people. But he spent more time trying to save other people than saving himself. You have to be really selfish in recovery. You have to worry about yourself and only yourself. Your mind starts telling you that you don't have to go to as many meetings. You tell yourself that you could hang around these people. But you can't. You just can't. It doesn't work that way, Gerard says. Without fail, Ken would sober up and think he could handle things on his own and then find himself trying to help out someone he met in rehab who would drag him back into drug usage. They took advantage of him, his kindness, his generosity. They drove his cars, crashed in his house for weeks at a time, and mooched off the famous ball player who they befriended in rehab. Caminiti's attorney, Kent Schaefer, would be dispatched to the house in Baytown, Texas, to escort people off the property, secure Ken's belongings, and change the locks when Ken wasn't in town. Schaefer called it a flop house with people he went to jail with or met in rehab or halfway houses. Ken
3: was used and abused by everybody,
0: mm-hmm.
3: okay, Ken was a good guy, he was a giving guy, he, got, he had a good heart and people saw that and people took him for what he had, but I stopped a lot of that and people they didn't like that. The abuse and the money handling that they had, coming to his house whenever they wanted, taking whatever they wanted. I put an end to that. So then I'm the bad girl. He didn't really care about money. Cammy was just very,
1: he was very giving. He didn't really, he he felt like the friendship was more important. That was more valuable to him than
0: money. Ken's personality made him popular amongst his Major League teammates. But among a different crowd, it only led to him being taken advantage of.
1: I don't think he got much support or... Or anybody really understood how conflicted he was with the major life change that was going on, with his, uh, you know, career ending and and, you know trouble with the law, getting involved. Also, I think he just he just hooked up his his uh, wagon to the first people that seemed like they were sympathetic with his plight, and I think all they wanted was to be a
0: part of. Ken failed four drug tests while on probation including one in February 2002 before his initial sentencing. After the motorcycle crash, he failed another test on January 27, 2003, and three days later, Harris County prosecutors filed a motion to adjudicate and revoke Ken's probation. The motion was overruled on February 4th, but Ken was sentenced to six months in a state jail substance abuse program. If he successfully completed the program, he would go back on deferred adjudication. Because of budgetary issues, the program was ended after only four months. He was released into the custody of the Next Step for Men Treatment Center and was considered to have successfully completed the program. After Ken was released from Next Step, he asked Maria Romero and her two children to leave New York and come move in with him in the Houston suburbs. And she did, pulling up steak and moving in with him in July. For the next few months, Ken appeared to be doing okay. During a public talk as part of National Alcohol and Drug Abuse Recovery Month, Kamenetti said, You think it's never going to happen to you. You think you'll never be locked up and never be put away. That was a real eye-opener for me, walking down the corridors in prison and having people walk up and say, Hey, Kameniti, sign my crack pipe. During that speech in September, Kamenetti announced that he had been sober for eight months and received loud cheers from the crowd of hundreds. He told media afterward that he hadn't spoken with any of his former Astros teammates since his arrest in 2001. Ken was isolated from his baseball friends, who either didn't or couldn't get a hold of him. Ken had a chance to get confirmation of just how much he was loved on September 28, 2003, when the San Diego Padres played their final game ever at Qualcomm Stadium. After years of delays and 17 lawsuits, the new downtown stadium that was voted on in 1998 was finally going to open in 2004. The Padres invited scores of alumni to be part of the ceremony at the Q. Padres owner John Moores and Caminiti's agent Rick Licht flew to Houston to personally convince him to come. Having just been released from the treatment program, he hesitated before agreeing on the condition that Nancy and his girls wouldn't go. He was convinced that fans were going to boo him, as they did when he returned with Houston. He thought that San Diego fans, as he thought of everyone else he encountered, could only think of him as the crack addict and steroid cheat. Childhood friend Dave Moretti said he never trusted people to love him for who he was, not just because he was a baseball player. He always had doubts about himself. Ken missed his flight to San Diego. He hopped on the next plane and was sick the whole time. He touched down in San Diego and got cold feet and changed his mind. Again, he was convinced to come. It was the first time that Caminiti had set foot in a major league ballpark since his last at bat as an Atlanta Brave in 2001. The Padres were playing the Colorado Rockies that day, the team that Mark Sweeney was playing for that year.
2: So I pinch hit, I think in the sixth or seventh inning. I don't remember what inning it was, but after I pinch hit, I went up to the locker room to take my my cleats off. And up I go. And they they had some former players there um, that were going to have a celebration after the game. And they were going to dig up home plate. They were going to take that to, to Petco. Um, so they had a celebration planned. I go up the tunnel on the visiting side. I turn the corner, and we're on the third base side. And there's probably four or five other guys, some Padre personnel. And there's, there's Ken Caminetti. And I'm sitting there like, this was the first time I saw him in a while. And he was nervous. I, I think he was nervous because he went through some off-field stuff. But it was his first time back at a major league game.
0: In between innings, they showed a highlight reel of some of Kamenendi's greatest moments with the Padres on the video board. And then cut to a live shot of Kami in John Moore's private booth. The fans cheered in appreciation showering love on a troubled man who desperately needed to be reminded that he was loved by the game he had given so much to. He stood up, wearing a red plaid short sleeve shirt and having visibly put on weight since his playing days. And in a touching moment, he waved to the crowd and tapped his right hand to his heart while choking back tears. He was quivering, Rick Lick told the San Diego Union-Tribune in 2004. He grabbed the back of my neck so hard, I thought my head was going to pop off it was like a vice. I think he was trying to gain his composure. It was a really emotional moment. Ken told people that it was one of the best days of his life.
2: After the game was over, I went in the locker room, took my stuff off, went right back. I wanted to watch the celebration. I wanted to watch Jerry Coleman be able to uh, give the speech. A lot of the um, people that they brought back, I wanted to see that because it was part of my my career, which I thought was, was pretty cool. Um, and I also wanted to be there for Kenny. Um, And it was, it, it was pretty awesome. At that point, they announced to the crowd that he was there. They showed him um, in the, in the uh, press box. But then they came back down. I sat there with him in the third base dugout by myself. And he's waiting. And he literally said to me, he goes, I don't know if I can do this. Because it was just emotionally um, charging for him. I said, man, the fans need to see you. They wanna see you, uh, you gave a lot of everything to these fans and they are in love with you. Um, out he goes, he goes crazy. And I was in the dugout almost by myself being able to watch this. It's almost like you, stars have to be reminded um, and they know it, but they uh, he needed to be reminded of, of how special it was for the fans to clap for him and him being able to wave to people that that uh, really took them into their homes and watching uh, Padre baseball and being a part of something that was special in 1998.
0: It was around that time that John Moores and Padres GM Kevin Towers began having discussions on how to bring Caminiti back into the Padres family. Moores thought that it would be good for Caminiti to get out of the cycle he was in and that the structure of being back in baseball would be a good thing for him. He floated the idea that Cami could be the Padres strength coach, but Towers thought that was a bad idea. The Padres instead invited Caminiti to spring training in 2004 as a special assistant hitting instructor. Towers, who repeatedly called Caminiti one of his favorite players ever, remembers Ken showing up with dark eyes and traveling with a shady crowd. KT, I don't feel right. This ain't me, he allegedly said to him. One day, Ken showed up to spring training with a black eye. He allegedly sustained it in a domestic altercation in which Maria Romero hit him and he didn't fight back. Maria denies this happened. Ken Caminiti had a lot of complicated relationships in his post-baseball days, but none was more so than Maria Romero. When they met at the Smithers Clinic in September 2000, they hit it off quickly. Ken became a father figure to Maria's kids, and even changed the diapers of her infant son. Their relationship continued for the next four years, and the two even became engaged to be married during spring training in 2004.
3: We went to a, we went to a mall and um we we were just shopping and he randomly went inside um a jewelry store and he got a ring there. He picked it out, um he asked me if I liked it this one stone and I said it was cute. So he he sent to her. he ordered it. Um, and then when we went to pick it up, he proposed when we was getting in the car. But no, apparently that wasn't a proposal. Um, I, I, I read in an article that um, I made him buy me that ring. You can't make Ken do anything.
0: Kent Schaefer told ESPN that Ken and Maria were absolutely not engaged. He said the only time he and Ken talked about Maria was with problems with the relationship and how to get her away from him. Multiple people interviewed in multiple articles over the years said that Ken's intentions were to get and stay clean and then to try to reconcile with Nancy.
3: Yeah, I mean he's a good he's a good guy and everything, but you can't make him do anything he doesn't want to do. They can say every anything that they want to say. They can say that they didn't want me with him. That I'll say is that much is true. Yeah. Because I was the odd girl, you know, I come from, 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 the, from New York, I come from the ghetto. It's okay. I'm, I'm good with that. Because I'm not going to deny where I come from. I know
0: where I come from. Ken sought help from his probation officer, Tracy Burns. He said he was trying to get Maria out of his house and she would not leave. Burns stole ESPN in 2004. He was distraught and I had to go out there and intervene. Ken paid for Romero and two of her kids who were living with him to fly to Tampa, Florida. Maria denies Burns' account. I left. Why did you leave?
3: Because everything started stirring up because he went back into drugs. I was very ill when I left, by the way, too. I was in the hospital for two months before I left the house. When I left there, that same day, Ken's probation officer had come to the house because I put the call in. Okay, so what are they saying that they that I was that they took me out of there because I was evicted? That was a lie. And the ones that helped me leave the house were his front neighbors, which they they desperately wanted me out of there because I was no good for Ken. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't keep my mouth shut.
0: After this incident, on May 11, 2004, the terms of Ken's probation were amended to send him to treatment at the next step. It also included this passage. You are to have no contact with Maria Rodriguez in person, in writing, by telephone, via the internet, a third party, or other means for any reason, except as specifically permitted by the court. It has been reported over the years that the no contact order was against Maria Romero. But the court documents make no mention of her.
3: I, I, I've, I've never, never, never got any paperwork. I want people to show me where is that letter that I was evicted, number one, that there was a no contact, because I never received any paperwork.
0: So who was Maria Rodriguez? She was nobody. The intent of the court was likely to issue the order against Maria Romero. But somehow, they got the wrong name, and we don't know how. It's possible Ken intentionally gave the court the wrong name. What we do know is that Maria Romero was never served with paperwork notifying her of the no-contact order, because one was never issued against her. Legally speaking, no-contact orders cannot be enforced until the parties are notified. We also don't know who sought the no-contact order. It certainly doesn't seem to be Ken. Flight records obtained by ESPN indicate that he was in Tampa three times from June through August, and Maria flew to Houston twice. The two spoke frequently over the phone. If Ken knew that he had a no-contact order with Maria Romero, his actions show that he didn't intend to abide by it. Also, none of Ken's actions are consistent with the picture that outsiders paint of their relationship. If he was truly looking to get away from Maria at all costs, why did he keep in contact and arrange for those flights? At the same time, why would his lawyer and probation officer make something like that up? We don't know exactly when it started, but around this time, Ken began to spiral out of control. With Maria no longer there to keep him stable, he was allowing drug addicts to live with him for weeks and months at a time. And by summer 2004, Caminiti was using meth. He grew further depressed and paranoid, constantly changing his cell phone number and growing more distant from his family. Ken Kamenity was arrested on September 10, 2004. He had failed yet another drug test. This time, he sat in jail for 25 days until a hearing on October 5. Ken had two legal options. He could continue his probation and begin a long-term rehab program supervised by Texas courts, or he could have his probation be terminated, then plead guilty to a felony, and face up to two years in jail. Kent Schaefer wanted him to take the court-ordered drug program. Caminiti chose to plead guilty to the felony. Schaefer ended his professional relationship with Caminiti over the matter, telling the Houston Chronicle, between now and spring training, he could be in a rehabilitation program, and then maybe he'd have made enough progress for the Padres to be comfortable doing something with him. But he wanted to take the time served and just get out. I told him, fine, let another lawyer do it. When you get arrested again, you'll be a second offender. It's not in your best interests, and I'm not going to be a part of it." Ken frequently called Maria from jail. They made plans together for when he was getting out. Ken was to fly to Florida to see Maria, and then they would go together to New York to talk to one of Maria's sons who was getting into drug trouble. Ken's older brother and role model, Glenn, traveled from San Jose to Houston to visit him in jail and persuade him to take the rehab program. I thought that if he couldn't stay in jail, I was so afraid that I would get the call and he would be on a cold slab in a morgue, Glenn said. Ken said that he thought he had been a failure, and his older brother tried to assure him that he wasn't and give him a hug. Ken pushed him away. He looked at him and said, No one can save me. I can't save me. Caminiti walked into Judge Bill Harmon's courtroom on October 5th and pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 180 days in jail but was given credit for 189 days served between his stint in 2003 and in the last month on wednesday october 5th 2004 ken caminiti walked out of that houston courtroom a free man and a felon he had a new start and was publicly optimistic for the future ken told people that he was heading up to montana to hunt fish and work on his sobriety but ken Never made it to Montana. Nobody knew, but Ken Kamenetti walked out of Judge Bill Harmon's courtroom with only five days left to live. On the next episode of Secondary Lead, the rise and fall of Ken Kamenetti, the final days and legacy of Ken Kamenetti. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or a review, and spread the word by telling a friend. Follow us at Secondary Lead on Twitter and Instagram, like our Facebook page, and check out Show Extras on YouTube. Music is courtesy of PurplePlanet.com and the YouTube Audio Library. Our theme was written and performed by Jim Montgomery and Chris Cattrell. I'm your host, Joe Vassil. Thanks for listening.